You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today, we'll be discussing the innovative and impactful technologies nominated for the Better World Project. The Better World Project, organized by Autumn, recognizes and honors technologies that have the potential to make a significant positive impact on society. This year, we are excited to highlight the work of three finalists who have been selected from among a competitive group of nominees. Our first nomination comes from Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital, where scientists have developed a novel protein subunit vaccine that addresses the cost, scalability, and storage challenges that have hindered the rapid distribution of vaccines globally. Through a bold decision to not file patent protection on the vaccine technology, BCM Ventures has enabled global access and rapid commercialization. This strategy has led to the licensee receiving emergency use authorization in India and distributing over 100 million doses with hundreds of millions more reserved. These efforts have been recognized with the nomination of Drs. Peter Hatzes and Maria Elena Batazzi for the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. Joining us to discuss is Brad Karadolf, Senior Manager of Commercialization and Technology Management at BCM Ventures. Welcome, Brad. It's great to have you on the air. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on being one of the finalists for the Better World Project. And let's go ahead and jump in and talk about that. Um, so, Brad, can you explain the challenges that traditional COVID-19 vaccines face with regards to cost, scalability, and storage? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so I think as most people probably now know, most of the COVID-19 vaccines rely on mRNA vaccine technology. This is a technology that's relatively new. Uh, in fact, I don't think it's been widely deployed prior to COVID. Um, during Operation Warp Speed, mRNA technology was really touted for its rapid development capabilities um, because scientists could simply sequence the virus and then quickly produce the mRNA for clinical testing and eventual um, vaccine production. Um, but, you know, as with anything in life, um, there are upsides and downsides, and there are downsides to the mRNA technology as well. One of them is that it is a new technology, so it's just not been very widely tested. Um, another is that it's much more difficult to scale up RNA synthesis um, to produce a large number of vaccines. Um, this has been routinely done for proteins, um, but in the RNA space, the DNA space, uh, to the scale that would be needed for massive deployment of vaccines for the world, um, it just hadn't been done before. Uh, another thing that um, is an issue for the mRNA vaccines is that they have very strict cold chain requirements. Um, they have to be kept at very low temperatures um, during um, long-term storage. And many developing countries just don't have widespread access to these refrigeration uh, equipments. Um, so it's very difficult to deploy these um, in many parts of the world. Uh, and then finally, because it's new technology, 
there's a lot of novel intellectual property associated with it. That is something that's very attractive from a commercial perspective because it means that the companies that are developing the vaccines can build large patent fences around them to protect their products. Um, but naturally, that increases the costs. And so for um, certain parts of the world, that um, might make them uh, cost prohibitive for widely deploying them. So how did the scientists at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital address these challenges in their development of the novel protein subunit vaccine? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually a bit serendipitous. Um, our, uh, our scientists primarily work in the neglected tropical disease space. So they the focus of their research is specifically on diseases in developing countries um, where they don't have access to a lot of the equipment and just don't have the funding to be able to purchase uh, vaccines at uh, a high cost. Uh, and so they have done quite a bit of work in the recombinant uh, protein vaccine space because there are a number of advantages for this type of technology. One, it's been around for many decades. And so the equipment that's needed to actually produce these vaccines are widely distributed. Um, second, you know, recombinant protein vaccine, uh, recombinant protein technology has been around for quite a while and the scalability issues have, have been addressed uh, for quite some time. And so these can be produced at large scale. In fact, um, the specific technology for this vaccine, uh, the protein is made in yeast. Um, it's actually a transfected yeast that's then um, cultured, fermented, uh, and then produces the protein. So you can think of it a bit like beer brewing, actually. So um, they can actually put um, these yeast in very large fermenters, many thousands of liters, and just produce bucket loads of protein for a very low cost. Finally, um, storage issues for these uh, proteins are much less stringent than for the mRNA technologies. Standard refrigeration um, is perfectly acceptable um, for these. Um, and these were important factors for our scientists because they do focus on neglected tropical diseases. And so even before COVID, this was something um, that they were thinking about. The other um, sort of serendipitous thing about uh, this for our scientists is they've actually done research in SARS before. Um, it, seems strange to think about it now, but um, SARS, uh, the original SARS, uh, and then sort of subsequently MERS, uh, which was in the Middle East, they sprung up um, much like COVID-19, but then kind of fizzled out pretty quickly. And so our scientists almost thought of them like neglected tropical diseases because there really wasn't a huge market for these because they would spring up in Asia or in the Middle East and then fizzle out pretty quickly. Um, and so they actually, because of their work in neglected diseases, had been doing some work uh, with SARS too. So they are, were already ahead of the curve um, and had a lot of experience with the original uh, SARS vaccine uh, technology for the original SARS virus. So Brad, how do you see the role of universities in the commercialization and distribution of vaccines, particularly when we talk about countries that face costs, scalability and storage issues like India? Yeah, and it's a big challenge for um, for universities. Um, but I think there are some opportunities. One is trying to think about a viable commercialization strategy. Um, so, you know, typical tech transfer, we develop a technology, we'll patent it and then look for a licensee. In many cases, that uh, means licensees who um, or just sort of in our, our local region. 
Um, the other issue, again, you know, we mentioned cost prior uh, in a previous question. Cost becomes an issue, particularly if there are lots of intellectual property um, rights associated with particular technology. Um, and for many of the developing countries, you know, when you take and consider the the cost of patent protection broadly and the competitive advantages that gives you, you know, the subsequent cost of the product may be too high in those regions. Again, serendipity um, in this case as well. Our scientists were already aligned on the um, the neglected disease front, um, you know, they weren't really in it for making billions of dollars uh, selling to big pharma. They were focused primarily on bringing low cost technologies to um, the developing world that needed it. And so our scientists were really aligned um, with that. And, you know, college leadership at the start of the pandemic was also looking for ways that we could sort of leverage our um our nonprofit mission-related interests for more broadly um, impacting global health and health in general. So, Brad, how do you envision this approach to vaccine development and distribution might impact future pandemics and global health crises? Well, I think this could be a good test case to see what universities can do and and how um, universities could really compete with big pharma. I mean, one of the challenges that we had early on, we did have, as I had mentioned earlier, we had a vaccine technology for the original SARS uh, vaccine. Um, and so at the very beginning, we were actually looking for a license, uh, a licensee, a partner, to bring that technology to market in the hopes that there was enough cross protection that it could be almost immediately deployed. In fact, we had lots of GMP material already banked um, in freezers just waiting to be used because again, you know, the original SARS uh, virus um, fizzled out very quickly. So I think that that's a good test case for showing that a university could have could develop these technologies and could actually develop it to the point that uh, we might be able to compete on scale uh, with pharma. The, the challenge for us was that, you know, the technology or the virus actually was just moving too fast. The FDA was really not interested in technologies that were devoted to the original SARS virus. They wanted something that was specifically focused for COVID-19. And that's one of the reasons that the mRNA technologies at least in the U.S., were, were highly favored. Um, but I think the, the test case with our licensee has actually shown that this recombinant vaccine technology could compete even you know, close to time as well. In fact, our licensee, I just saw um, this earlier this month, they've announced that they'll be um, seeking approval to do a bivalent uh, vaccine clinical trial in India. So even though the mRNA technology has a lot of advantages, is probably faster, I think our scientists in collaboration with industry has actually have actually shown that even traditional recombinant vaccine technologies that have been used for many decades um, could compete even on a time scale and can compete with big pharma um, even on the time scale. Now, Brett, could you discuss any of the ethical considerations and trade-offs that came with the decision not to file for patent protection on the vaccine technology? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the issues is, and, and this is something that we are asked by by college leadership, is whether we're really capturing the value for the college. You know, we have an obligation to 
um, to protect college's intellectual property. We have an obligation just based on the mission goals of the college to disseminate health-related technology to the global market. Um, but in in doing so, I mean, we, we do want to be you know, appropriately compensated for that uh, and share in any profits. And so the college is always, you know, interested in, in knowing whether or not we're getting our fair um, value back for that. So that was one thing that we considered. The other is looking to make sure that we are aligned with the scientists. As I had mentioned earlier, in this case, um, you know, that was very easy because our science, our scientists already had this um, this focus on tropical diseases that were neglected. They do quite a bit of work in global access. In fact, um, they often will go into developing countries to help develop infrastructure apart from from COVID or anything else, but to develop vaccine manufacturing capabilities um, in these countries. And so developing that that local production capacity uh, has always been something that's that's been very interesting to them. And so us marketing this to developing countries was something that was very attractive to them um, just because it aligns so well with their um, their actual research goals. The other thing that we thought about just college-wide is, you know, making sure this gets out to patients quickly. Um, you know, there are many uh, universities, many scientists um, in the U.S. and abroad who are looking to develop vaccine technologies. There are quite a few. But one of the issues that we saw was that the space is moving so fast I think one of the real competitive advantages to not patenting and just moving quickly to an, an industrial partner was that it enabled them to move very quickly. In fact, from licensure to a vaccine actually being available for patients with our first licensee, I think that took place in less than 18 months. And, you know, I think that's a big challenge for the universities that went a more traditional route, had novel intellectual property, patented it, and then licensed it to um, to companies to develop, just because the vaccine is moving, the vaccine space is moving so quickly, by the time something comes out, you're two or three generations more advanced. In fact, it, it, it almost reminds me a little bit of the software space. Um, and in that space also, uh, patents are not um, quite as common because the different um, versions of software develop so quickly by the time a patent is issued, you know, you're, you're three or four versions later on uh, on your software code. And so I think that was something that we also considered and, and just capturing that competitive advantage by being so quick to move to market. Uh, in fact, I don't know of any other, uh, you know, besides the mRNA technologies, I don't think there are very many other university-based technologies that are out and available to patients yet. No, I agree. None that I've at least heard of. Fred, can you talk about the success of the licensing and commercialization strategy in India, including the distribution of about 100 million doses, as well as the nomination of the scientists for the Nobel Peace Prize? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is something that the college uh, has been very, uh, very proud of. You know, Baylor College of Medicine is closely affiliated with Texas Children's. Our, our scientists are um, affiliated with both institutions. Uh, and so just from a sort of non-tangible um, perspective, we've gotten lots of great press um, from the success of our uh, our licensees. We have licensees in India uh, as well as in Indonesia. Uh, the one in Indonesia actually just announced that they had emergency use authorization. So we uh, look forward to seeing them offer vaccine product 
to patients uh, very soon. We don't have the date on that yet, um, but that will be coming online soon. And, you know, from from our scientist perspective, I mean, it's kind of a dream come true. Again, you know, they they operate in a space in neglected diseases. It's always a struggle to try to get any company interest in those spaces just because there's not a lot of money to be made there. Um, but this is one case where, you know, we just had a number of, of partners that were capable of moving this forward and for for them to actually produce such a large amount of vaccines and get it to, to patient populations has just been pretty tremendous for, for the college uh, as well as for the scientists. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the air today. And again, congratulations to the scientists at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. Thanks so much for having me. Glaucoma a condition that affects over 3 million Americans, causes ocular pain and vision loss. But thanks to the work of Dr. Richard Hill, a physician of ophthalmology at the University of California, Irvine, a solution is now available. The eye stent ocular tube developed by Dr. Hill is a microinvasive surgical device that relieves ocular pressure by allowing fluid to move into the eye's normal drainage system. UCI filed patents on Dr. Hill's behalf and supported his startup, Glaucos Corporation, through licensing and commercialization, leading to the device and Glaucos technologies being implanted in more than 1 million procedures worldwide. Joining us to talk about this revolutionary device and the impact it has had on the treatment of glaucoma is Alvin Vare, Associate Director, Research Translation Group at the University of California, Irvine. Welcome, Alvin. It's really great to have you on the air. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you today. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. And we want to get into talking about uh, the eye stunt. And so let's go ahead and get started. So, Alvin, can you explain the condition of glaucoma and the impact it has on those who suffer from it? Sure. Glaucoma is a leading cause of blindness worldwide, not just in the U.S., but outside the U.S. It is a major cause of blindness. Glaucoma is caused by an increase in interocular pressure. Basically, your eyeball, everyone's eyeball, is like a fluid-filled sac. Think of it as a water balloon. And inside that water balloon is fluid called aqueous humor if we all remember that term from biology classes. And your body continuously produces aqueous humor and puts it in your eye. And the eye is supposed to continuously drain uh, aqueous humor as fast as it goes in. But as we age, the natural drainage system in our eye gets blocked and the pressure kind of builds up in our eye. That pressure can lead to damage to our optical nerve. And when you start damaging the optical nerve, that leads to vision loss uh, and blindness. And that's basically what glaucoma is. It's the increase in interocular pressure that's damaging a patient's optical nerve. So how does the eye stent ocular tube work to relieve ocular pressure and then improve the vision for those who suffer from glaucoma? Yeah. So the eye stent was developed here on campus by one of our ophthalmologists at our medical center, uh, Dr. Richard Hill. And it's a very simple, elegant device. It's basically a tube that you place into the into the eye 
that allows it to drain naturally into the natural drainage system. So think of it as like a, a wine barrel and you're putting a spigot into the bottom of the wine barrel to allow the fluid to drain. Uh, that's exactly what the ice stent does. It is a, we call it a stent, but think of it as, as a, a tube. Uh, it has some particular design features so that it, once it's implanted into the eye, it kind of stays in place. Uh, but it basically, one end of the tube is in the interior of the eye. The other end of the tube is towards what we call the uh, Schlems Canal, which is the natural drainage place for the fluid. So can you talk a little bit about the role of Dr. Richard Hill and the University of California, Irvine in the development and commercialization of the eye stent device? Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Hill was researching a way to treat the onset of glaucoma because he was seeing all these patients with this disease back in 2000 is when he developed this technology. Uh, so he was coming up with different ways to try to alleviate the interocular pressure of his patients. And he just got back to basics. He's like, hey, why don't we just uh, develop a tiny stent or a tube that we could insert into the eye that allow the fluid to drain to where it's supposed to drain. Uh, and he had contacted our office 20 years ago, said, hey, I think I've got something that's going to be very effective. Uh, he submitted an invention disclosure to our office. We viewed it, assessed it, decided, yep, this is something that we think is really going to help patients uh, worldwide. And we sought a patent on it. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, Dr. Hill decided that he himself would start a company to try to commercialize uh, the eye stents which we were more than happy to help him do. And at the time that he did that, you know, he knew nothing about entrepreneurship or patents or business plan or, or starting companies. So that was a journey that he, he kind of did for the first time and actually became very successful. That's a great, great story. Yeah, that company he named Glockos that he co-founded. Glockos was the first to get FDA approval for this type of technology called a microinvasive surgical glaucoma device. And he was able to get FDA approval, started in patients. Uh, 2015, they went public. So they are a publicly traded company now. And in 2022, they announced that they had put the ice stent in 1 million procedures worldwide. That's incredible. That's a lot of treatments. And I'm sure it's made a tremendous difference in many people's lives. And so I'm curious, given that there have been that many treatments, how does the eye stent compare to traditional surgical treatments for glaucoma? And what's the benefits of having this microinvasive approach? Sure. The other treatments is more highly invasive. One is a laser treatment where you actually will go in to the eye and clean out the uh, block channels. And you do that well, with a laser. So you could go in and zap it 
clear out the channels that's being blocked with the laser. Unfortunately, that is, you know, there are, there could be a lot of side effects with that. Uh, it depends on the sort of the skill of the surgeon. You might accidentally apply the laser too long and remove too much material. Uh, also, there's, you have to, the surgeon has to be very experienced as to where he's play, is directing the laser to remove the uh, blockage. Whereas the ice dent, you could kind of place it in several different places along the natural drainage canal. So even if the ophthalmologist doesn't quite exactly place it where he wanted it to, um, it will still be effective. In fact, uh, some patients will have uh, more than one ice dent implanted. Sometimes they'll have two or maybe even three, to, depending on how much drainage they need. So you could put the ice dent in many different places and areas of the eye. So it seems like the likelihood of success is probably a lot higher using the eye stent, you know, given the variability that can result from using a laser. Absolutely. Uh, This is true. Uh, Another treatment is eye drops. So that's what the ophthalmology is going to try first, is uh, try eye drops. Uh, for our patient. Sometimes eye drops don't work though. The eye drops is, is basically a chemical and what it's trying to have your eye do is produce less uh, fluid so that less fluid is going in, into the eye. And sometimes that doesn't work too well for patients. Patients will still produce more fluid in the eye and sometimes that mechanism, it doesn't uh, do anything for the blockage. It's just telling the eye to produce less fluid uh, instead of actually going in and doing something for the blockage. Uh, so the, the eye drops sometimes do not work. Uh, so they'll need something a little bit more uh, invasive, but not as invasive as the laser treatment. And that's where uh, the eye stent comes in. It's microinvasive. Where do you see the technology going in the future? How do you think it will evolve? And how do you think this will impact the treatment of glaucoma? Uh, I think that, you know, they've, they've done 1 million procedures as of last year. They're continuing to do more and more as the procedure gets more accepted. I think that what will happen in the future is that they'll have uh, iterations of the ice stents. When at first, the first prototype of the ice stent was literally a tube with a uh, 90 degree angle on it. Nowadays, that uh, design has gotten improved over the years. So now that they have a way to, once it's implanted, it doesn't move uh, because of some of the design features of the eye stent. And I think that uh, uh, that will continue to evolve over time, the design of it. Well, Alvin, thank you so much for your time and congratulations again to Dr. Hill and the University of California, Irvine, on your Better World Project nomination. Lisa, thank you so much. We're we're really excited to be nominated and we look forward to hearing about the winner here at the annual autumn conference. Our final nominee today is an innovative device that uses vibrational waves to non-invasively and effectively treat a variety of neurological disorders such as cerebral palsy and autism. This is a low-cost and safe alternative to traditional treatment methods. The NUST Technology Transfer Office played a crucial role in the development of the device, 
coordinating with various departments and stakeholders to bring the project to fruition. The Echo device has now been licensed to MS Rise Tech for commercialization, making it accessible to patients everywhere. Joining us to talk about this innovation is Dr. Rizwan Riaz, Director of the Prorector for Research, Innovation, and Commercialization at the National University of Sciences and Technology. Welcome, Rizwan. I'm super excited to have you here on the air. Uh, thank you for having me. Rizwan, before we get into talking about the Better World Project nomination, can you tell us a little bit about the National University of Science and Technology? Uh, my pleasure. So National University of Sciences and Technology, or NUST, as we call it, is Pakistan's top university. It's a fully comprehensive university, although it says science and technology, but it has all the arts and management sciences and biosciences, etc. in it. Uh, it is ranked 334th in the world in QS rankings. And in different research areas, it is ranked as high as number four in the world, something I'm quite sure that your audience does not know. So it's a, a wonderful ecosystem of innovation and commercialization included with the academic part, of course. So I invite all uh, your listeners to visit NAST, visit Islamabad at their earliest opportunity. Rizwan, switching now to talk about the Better World Project nomination, can you tell us about the EchoWave therapeutic device and how it works to treat neurological disorders? Yeah, sure. So the EchoWave therapeutic device uses ultra-low frequency vibration waves as a means of stimulating neurological uh, tissue inside the body. And depending upon where you want to use it, the waves, their frequencies, their amplitudes can be controlled. And this is a, a device which has been locally developed in NUST and has now been commercialized and has been tested in uh, over 4,000 uh, sessions of uh, therapy for different patients with neuro neurological disorders. That's really amazing. And can you tell us a little bit about what the research and development process of the EcoWave therapeutic device was like at NUST? Oh, that's a, actually a very interesting story. So uh, one of our students uh, in 2017 uh, talked to her supervisor that she had a child with cerebral palsy and she could not find any therapy uh, for her child, which was working. And she had heard of a doctor again in Pakistan who was using ultra low frequency waves for speech therapy. So they started working on this idea. Then they found other research around the world and converted that into a tabletop device, which could be tuned to different frequencies. And she actually started using it on her child first and saw immediate improvement. And then they you know, modified it more, started working with clinicians, designed two different devices, one portable and one for clinics. Uh, and uh, over the last five years have actually taken it to the point where it is currently under certification processes by the Pakistan's uh, Drug Regulatory Authority. You mentioned she used it for cerebral palsy. What other neurological disorders are they using it for? Okay, so uh, this can be used for any neurological disorder. Basically, the idea is to stimulate the uh, neurological tissue in whatever area uh, which is being influenced. So in cases where there is a mobility issue or movement issues, uh, it can be used in the limbs area or any tissue where there seems to be uh, an issue with the, uh, with the nerves. 
And this seems to stimulate the nerves and has been tested in different uh, clinical settings. So um, I don't know if I can reveal all the, uh, the research that they've done since it's under patent process, but I do believe that uh, they consider it useful for over 200 different types of neurological therapies. That's incredible. So how does the eco device compare then to current treatments for neurological disorders? And what are the benefits of this non-invasive approach? Right. So, of course, one of the benefits is that it is a non-invasive approach. And uh, most of the current uh, therapies involve, at the extreme, electroshock therapies or electroconvulsive therapies, and on others, uh, basically, environmental and uh, occupational therapies. Uh, this is the first time that uh, this kind of uh, uh, low-frequency wave has been used for a neurological therapy, uh, uh, and specifically where it is tunable. So the patents that they're talking about are more about the tunable nature of uh, uh, the wave. And this device, I think, is unique as far as the research we know of, uh, of a device which has been used in clinical settings. There have been research projects earlier. This is the first one which is doing it uh, in a clinical setting and has actually been used in clinical settings. Rizwan, can you discuss the process of commercialization and licensing of the Echo device to MS Rise Tech? Yeah, so at NAST, we have uh, one of Pakistan's oldest uh, patent and commercialization office, a technology transfer office. And what we do is that we encourage all our students and faculties to take their projects to an extent where they can be patented and offered to industry. So uh, the technology transfer office of NAST actually asked the faculty members when they uh, brought this project into in a student competition. So this technology transfer office saw the, the potential approached them to develop it to a to a patent level uh, application and then uh, asked one of the faculty members to follow the commercialization route. So at NAST, we have two methods of commercialization. One is where you have an existing company and you license out a product to them, or you ask the faculty members or students to create a new startup. So in this case, the product was licensed out to an existing uh, spinoff and uh, they were able to commercialize it into a product and put it through testing and is currently under licensing for clinical use. It can already be used in therapeutic settings, but not in clinical settings until the licensing is done. So Rizwan, how do you see this technology evolving in the future and impacting the treatment of neurological disorders? Uh, I hope to see uh, such non-invasive uh, procedures and therapies come into much wider use since it's very, very comfortable for both the patient and the clinician. Uh, we hope that this device and others like it will revolutionize. We in academia like to use the word revolutionize a lot, well, but will revolutionize the therape therapeutic landscape. Uh, the ultra low frequency waves have been tapped for the first time for this kind of work. So we are very sure that as the research develops and as the work in the labs develop and the data gets collected from the clinicians, uh, we will be able to improve this device and create more devices, maybe for more specific uses. And with the advent of artificial intelligence and medical field, we feel that right now what is being done through very manual control will become a part of a device that anybody will be able to carry and use uh, in their home settings or any settings of their own comfort. Well, thank you so much, Rizwan, for being on the podcast today. And congratulations again to NUST on your Better World Project nomination. Thank you very much, Lisa.
We've heard from a diverse group of nominees for the Better World Project and their innovative technologies that have the potential to make a real impact on the world. Now it's up to you to decide which nominee should win the award. Cast your ballot now for your favorite technology transfer success story. Voting closes at 3 p.m. Central Time on February 21st. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next episode. Until then, stay curious and keep working towards a better world. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.